I'd like to read a story um, from Stephen Levine called Heaven or Hell. Something that I used to love when I first uh, started practicing in this tradition. And I lost this reading for I don't know, 15 years and then I came across it the other day. So, and it relates to what we're talking about tonight. So, There's a story about a fellow who dies and leaves his body and finds himself in a glistening realm. Standing in the midst of shining flowers in an iridescent sky, he looks about and thinks to himself, Wow, I was better than I thought. I've gone to heaven. How about that? But I need some place to live. And with that thought, his dream house materializes a few feet away. As he approaches the door, it swings open to reveal the decor he always wished to live in. Sitting down on the perfectly comfortable couch, he looks about at his perfectly beautiful house and thinks, I'd really like something to eat. And just as one of the living room walls slides back to reveal shelves filled with all his favorite dishes prepared just the way he likes them. Sitting there musing and bemused by his surroundings, he thinks, I should like to hear some music right now. And at the very moment, his favorite bark a cantata exudes from the walls. This is really far out, he thinks, just what I've always wanted. Hanging out in his luxurious space for a few days, he feels very relaxed and comfortable. And then he thinks, this is very nice but I really liked someone to share it with. And then comes a knock on the door. The door swings open, and standing there is his perfect sexual, intellectual, emotional, spiritual partner. <laughs> his soulmate, right? Because we know they're out there somewhere. <laughs> Come right in, he says. And there they are, living, living out their desires week after week. One after another, his desires materialize the moment he wishes for them. But after about six months, he notices that Although he's getting everything he wants, he doesn't really feel more fulfilled in any deeper sense. He notices that the mind still holds fear. He recognizes that if all this were to disappear, he would be devastated. Noticing how attached he has become to all this luxury, he thought, I've always imagined that if I only get, could get what I want, I'd be happy. But how can I be happy if I depend so much on what is given to create my happiness? How can I depend on so much, how can I be, depend so much on external conditions for my peace of mind? All this gratification, or wonderful, isn't really making me any lighter, any wiser, any quieter in my mind. There's less stress from not getting what I want, but there's really not any more peace. Another couple of ice cream sodas, another couple of lovemakings, and after a month or so, he starts to question again whether this is really very useful for him. None of this has taken him beyond his desires. He has not in the least dealt with that place within him that only feels comfortable when it, get what it get, gets what it wants. He has not touched the yearning, the root that made life such pain at times. In fact, he feels as though he's feeding this root by the escalation of all his desires. And he begins to wonder if there might not be some place in the universe where he could work more deeply on the latent fears and separateness that have always caused him difficulty. After a while, he goes to the headman and says, I don't mean to sound so ungrateful, and this may sound preposterous, but I think I'd like a transfer to hell. <laughs> And the headman turns slowly to him and says, And where do you think you are? <laughs> so, interesting story, huh? Sounds a little like life in the Bay Area. <laughs> Sometimes, on a good day, you know, when the wind's behind you and the the heat wave and the air conditioning works and 
your soulmate shows up and all of that. So I like that reading because it, it, it really turns on its head how we're conditioned, how we're led to believe what creates the source of happiness. And it speaks to this teaching that I want to talk about tonight, which I reflect on a lot, which the Buddha talked about as, a, as, a, mm, as an example of, of how things are forever fleeting in our lives and how we uh, create a lot of suffering or distress for ourselves depending on our relationship, depending on the, on the, the wisdom of, of how we relate to these fleeting circumstances. So he said once, he said, these, worldly, these eight worldly conditions revolve around the world and the world revolves around these eight worldly things. And what are these eight? They are gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, and praise and blame. So it's an interesting list in itself that the, the Buddha highlighted these eight things. That could, you know, there are other things like success and failure. You could add your own pairs of opposites that your life can seemingly swing between or that you f- try to focus on one set of conditions and not the other or flee from one and seek the other out. But what he's speaking to is just that, that, that our life isn't one steady thing. As we know, it's con- constantly changing. And as I said, what, how we relate to these circumstances, how we relate to the changing nature of them, really determines a lot of our well-being. And yet the mind, the, the, we, we, we are housed in this body and mind, and the mind is always seeking heaven, or what it thinks it's heaven, seeking a set of conditions that will stay stable, that will stay relatively reliable and dependable, like our body, or a partner, or a stable economy, or a stable work situation, or something, right? We're all looking for some kind of ballast, you know, and there, there are relative ballasts in this life for sure, in, in our friends and our loved ones and uh, nature and practice and community. and they're all subject to these same laws. And so we have to keep asking ourselves, how do I relate to these things? Am I I fighting the inevitable? Am I fighting uh, the laws that govern this life? Am I blaming myself for not having sorted out all my conditions? Am Am I blaming reality or God or something for things not being so certain? I was just, um, took a vacation a couple of weeks ago. Um, vacation is sort of a new concept for me because in most of my life, a vacation was a retreat. And at some point I realized retreats weren't really vacations. <laughs> they kind of work. For those of you who know, how many people here have been on meditation retreats? Right, would you call that a vacation? <laughs> no, it's a vacation of sorts. You don't have to go to work. You don't have to clean your house, but it's work. So at some point I woke up to this idea that vacations were a really good thing. So I went on one last week, uh, a couple weeks ago, up to Tahoe and um, doing a lot of kayaking on the lake. 
and it was and I was thinking about these, these this teaching because it's, it was quite windy and I always wanted the lake to be that really lovely smooth glassy rolling calm as it can be beautiful in the morning and and then at some point a friend of mine said watch out for the dark blue line I said, what's that? She said, I don't know, but it comes across the lake and then it gets really wild out there. So I kept looking out for the dark blue line. Sure enough, there was a dark blue line would come and the wind would come and it would get really choppy and there would go my nice blissful meditation on calm. And I always say to myself, damn these worldly winds. I like things to stay the same. So, you know, it was just a metaphor for how we get seduced into certain, whatever it is, states or connections or ways of being that are, that are going along a certain way. And then they change. And then we get reflected back, our relationship to how attached we are, how fluid we are, how flexible we are, how open we are, how uh, adaptable we are. So one of the translations that I like of mindfulness is a responsiveness to the moment. So to the extent that we're, we're, we're living uh, in mindfulness, we're living with a certain responsiveness to the changing nature of things. So pleasure, gain, fame, and praise. Anybody like those things? Yeah, we like those things. And, and, reflect, and we think about how much of your life is oriented towards achieving some of those things. Pleasure, gain, praise, maybe perhaps not fame, but acclaim, or reputation, or advancement in some way. And how much we spend our lives avoiding pain, naturally, blame, loss and disrepute. And if we take it when I take a step back and look at that, we see how impossible that navigation is in this life. Right? There's only so much we can navigate to avoid loss. Right? Every decision involves loss. Every hello involves saying goodbye. So in our practice, in our meditation practice, one of the things we're cultivating through mindfulness is equanimity. Equanimity to be with these changing ups and downs, ebbs and flows, just in the, in the very simple act of meditation. I don't imagine that much of your meditation was just this long, I mean, unless you were asleep, which you might have been, or zoned out. You know, it's a fluid fluctuating, ebbing, thinking, feeling, calm, still, excited, restless, dull, bored, peaceful, calm, hellish, lovely, get me out of here, where's the cookies? <laughs> and Oh no, don't ring the bell. I was just finally... <laughs> so this is a story from the Zen tradition about this, uh, this teaching. There was a well-known scholar who practiced Buddhism and befriended a Chan meditation master. Thinking that he had made great stride in his cultivation of meditation, he wrote a poem and asked his attendant to deliver it to the master who lived across the river. The master opened the letter and read the short poem aloud. Unmoved by the eight worldly winds, 
Serenely, I sit on the purplish gold terrace. The purplish gold terrace is an abbreviation for sort of an awakened state. A smile broke up on the lips of the master as he read the letter. Picking up an inkbrush, he scribbled the word, the word fart across the letter <laughs> and asked that it be delivered back to the scholar. The scholar was tremendously upset and went across the river right away to reprimand the master for being so rude. The, la the master laughed as he said, you said you're no longer moved by the eight worldly winds, and yet with just one fart, you ran across the river like a rat? <laughs> so, you know, in Zen they give it to you a little like, you know, <laughs> slap across the face. We're a little gentler over here. So, you know, this is one of those teachings that you may, you may I'm, this is not a new teaching for many of you, and yet, and like most of Buddhist teachings, they're not new teachings, they're not, they're not original, they're not, you know, they're very simple in their form. You know, things change, don't hold on, <laughs> let go, be present, be kind, right? not rocket science, and yet the actual living of that is very, very challenging in every circumstance of our life. If you think about how often you get contracted because something is changing, because something is shifting from pleasure to pain, from gain to not gain, from being admired to being challenged or questioned. So the first um, pair of these, gain and loss, I want to speak a little about, since I think so much of our lives revolves around uh, gaining, accumulating, growing, developing, acquiring, um, and the avoidance of, mostly, the releasing, the letting go, the losing, the loss, the um, So think about the last, some, last time you gained something, the last something you got something you really wanted, like that cookie or um, some acknowledgement. Or... Notice what that feels like in the body to gain something, to gain some experience. Maybe it's in, and we can have this in meditation. We can have as much of this, this orientation with gaining meditation experience, gaining bliss, gaining calm, gaining happiness, gaining a quiet mind. And often I notice in my mind the thought bubbles up, ah, finally, great, my meditation's finally gotten on track. My mind is finally at peace. I bet it's gonna stay like this for a while. And then the mind, you know, enacts this scenario of how it's going to kind of be like this forever. No, no matter how many times we've seen through that doesn't happen, there's still there's this, you know, we live in this sort of fairy tale hope that things are going to just, you know, we, we get into a good groove with our partner and we think, oh great, finally, <laughs> we're just going to be smooth on out for a while. And then we get so ruffled when, it, when, it, you know, when there's some discord happens. 
and to think about what you sacrifice or what, what we do in order to, to gain the things that we're trying to gain. Right? We spend so much of our time in the pursuit of things, in the belief, not, you know, I mean, of course, there's a, there's a, that's also part of life. We have to, have to, but part of life is living fully and we have visions and plans and goals and just like at Spirit Walk, we have this desire to gain, to d- develop, to build this beautiful new uh, center here um, with a slightly higher ceiling. And yeah. But it's the quality, but what, ha- but what is lost or what, it, what do we sacrifice in that one-pointed pursuit? This is from Matt Damon, who uh, on getting home after winning his first Oscar, he said, I hope I haven't screwed anyone to get this because it's just not worth it. I used to think that getting an Oscar would make me happy, but it didn't. So it's very interesting. This is the pinnacle award of of some in the the acting world. And um, clearly having some insight into the, the, the ephemerality of that. So I will read you my favorite ad. Let me read you another ad instead. Um, So this is a cartoon that I came across not long ago. I like. So there's a few monks sitting around meditating, and one monk finally has attained, gotten, realized, you could say. And he's saying, hands up in the air, Oh yeah, first to reach enlightenment. Woohoo! Right here, people, eat my dust, everybody. <laughs> it's one way to go. So I'll read my favorite ad. This is from Outside Magazine. Some of you know this. So there's a guy sitting in front of all of his stuff that he's gained very happily, his truck and his kayak and his scuba and his golf clubs and his guitar and his dog and his bike and his skis and his computer and his all kinds of other things. And um, he's sitting meditating in front of the whole lot and it says, the ad says, uh, Spence has put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. (laughs) That's why he also has the new Ford Ranger, so he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment, and connect with Mother Earth by looking no further than into the planet's coolest four-door compact pickup. (laughs) He says it gives him easy access to inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. (laughs) So there you go. You know, I mean, just meditating is good, but... You could just get a new Ford pickup and you'd be there. Of course, since we're talking about gain and loss, you know, the Ford pickup is likely to deteriorate rather, you know, quicker than you would like and perhaps. So I remember reading this story about um, uh, this woman who traveled with uh, Aboriginal tribe as they were on walkabout and she was talking to them about uh, some sport, uh, I forget what it was, soccer, or maybe it was the Olympics or something, and 
and she was very bemused by their reaction to uh, her being so into the this particular sport um, because she said because they said well well what about the team who loses like that just seems like a setup for misery and what's the point of that she didn't have much of an answer to that but you know in a lot of our activities especially in you know I mean I think about American Idol which I watch every week no I don't but um, (laughs) You know, we live in this culture that's fixated around gain. In that case, also fame. And the, 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 the propping up of that as being the, the, the be-all and end-all, in a way. So with gain comes loss. You know, sometimes in meditation... Uh, uh, especially on a a, a longer retreat, you'll be asked to pay attention to the arising of of things and the passings of things. So in every moment, something is arising into consciousness and something is passing away. So when we listen to the sound, we normally hear the arising, we hear the the striking of the sound with the ear consciousness. But we also, if you pay attention, you can also hear the passing away of of one sound prior to the next sound arising. So depending on where we place our attention, normally the the, the attention is drawn towards the the arising. Towards, uh, in this case, gain, you could say, of the sense experience. But there's also, in every moment, there's also a corresponding waning of experience or a loss of something. You know, we can see that in a macro, it's much easier to see in, a, in, in a, the macro picture with the economic you know, downturn, uh, with a huge amount of loss that's been happening over years with money and employment. I was watching, uh, anybody watch the film Thrive? Yeah, a couple of you, interesting film. Anyhow, um, they were chronicling the the financial uh, rise and collapse of the Iceland banking system that was really strong and robust um, probably 20 years ago. And then because they opened up up to deregulation, um, basically the economy ran amok and crashed. And it was one of the first economies to crash. Um, And just interesting to see, you know, with any... Uh, of these, um, uh, just tracking what's happened over the last five or six years, or the past 20 years, these boom-bust cycles that the economy has been riding on. Tremendous gain and tremendous loss. And they go together. And we all, not we all, most people get pulled in by the, the euphoria of the gain, of the increase, of the, when the stock market's on a run, and we think it's going to last forever. Because of any very small study of economic history proves otherwise. So um, there was once an article in the New York Times, in the New York Times, the London Times, 
of a very striking article. There was a picture of Prince Charles visiting a homeless shelter, which he's, he does a lot of work for the homeless. And he was in a homeless shelter somewhere in London. And uh, there was a man uh, lying on the floor as he walked past. And the man said, and called Charles by his childhood nickname. And they had been um, in, in private school together in, I think it was in Harrow or in Eton. Um, and they played soccer together. And, and this, this uh, homeless man was a former well-known publisher and editor in London. And um, in his circumstances had taken a turn for the worse and ended up homeless and destitute. And it was such a striking juxtaposition of these two characters, the prince and the pauper, um, who both at one time had shared very similar conditions. So we never know. We never know. And what I find interesting about this teaching is we also never know what ultimately is actually a good thing or a bad thing. Because so often we think a gain is a good thing and a loss is a bad thing. And yet in the, in the, in the swoop of time, often we learn and we grow and, and we, you know, and I look back at my life at the many things that I've lost and I have profound appreciation for those things and often grew and deepened my understanding a lot more than I did from anything that I gained. Yeah? Generally when we're in a gaining mode, we go into cruise mode. We kind of go to sleep. And when, it's, when we're faced with the more challenging parts of the winds of loss, of pain, that we actually are forced to, to really look at ourselves. Not that we wish that on anybody, but... So that story of the... Uh, again, I think it's a Japanese farmer. Um, uh, how does the story go? It goes... There's a, uh, two farmers... Um, standing, talking to each other, and um, one of the farmers has uh, a, a son, and um, the, other, the other farmer is childless, and the childless farmer is saying, oh, you're so lucky you have a son, he's strong, he's healthy, he'll help you run the farm and uh, take over the farm when you're older, how, <clears throat> how lucky you are. And the other farmer, who is a, a wise man, said, yeah, well... Maybe so, maybe so. And then some time later, um, the young uh, farmer's son finds a um, horse out in the forest. And the neighboring farmer comes over and says, oh, you're so lucky, your, your son's found a, a horse, and he's gonna, the horse will be, you'll be able to train it, and you'll be able to plow and yield more crops, and how wonderful. And, and the wise farmer says, yeah, maybe so, maybe so. And then a little while later, the son's riding out on the horse in the forest and falls off and breaks his leg. And, the, and again, the neighboring farmer comes over, hears about it. Oh, it's so terrible that your, your son, he broke his leg. How he's going to help you on the farm? Things are going to be difficult this winter. And what are you going to do? And it's terrible. And the wise farmer says, yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. And then a little while later, the, the, uh, the army comes around recruiting young man, able-bodied man for the military service. And um, of course this, the farmer's son is, is, wound, is injured. And so they pass him by and 
Again, the neighboring farmer comes up and says, Oh, how lucky you are. The military didn't choose your son. How lucky he has a broken leg. And the story goes on and on. You get the point. <laughs> but we never know. We never know. This is uh, from the Dalai Lama about this teaching. He says, from the point of view of karma, we usually behave contrary to our goals because in order to receive what we want, we need to give others what they want. To avoid getting what we do not want, we should avoid giving to others what they do not want. This is a very good subject for meditation. You can ask yourself, for example, do I often give others happiness or unpleasant experiences? Do I give them pleasure or pain? Do I help others who are unhappy? How often do I blame people instead of praising them? What can I do with fame? What will it really bring me? What will be useful when I'm about to die? So I, I really like this teaching because it, for me, it flipped it and, and, and into the reflection of, well, how do I praise others? And how, and how do I blame others? How do I offer gain or contribute to someone's loss? Or how do I um, contribute to someone's pain or pleasure? Don't think I can make anybody famous. I might add to their disrepute. <laughs> um, so to think about how these, how we apply these these principles to ourselves, but also in relationship to others, particularly the piece around how how we blame or praise. How do we praise or blame? So there's a story, forgive me if these stories are familiar to some of you, of um, the, one of the founders of Japanese um, lineage, uh, Hakuin, and um, he's a well-known, esteemed uh, abbot of a monastery and uh, widely acclaimed teacher. And he's living up in his monastery. And one day there's a crowd of um, villagers at his door, very irate and angry because um, one of the local uh, uh, village girls has become pregnant. And rather than um, uh, reveal the source of her lover, she accused the abbot of being uh, her lover. And of course, this was great uh, shock to the village. And uh, when uh, she gave birth to the child, they made uh, this particular meditation teacher uh, take in the child. And um, instead of trying to defend himself or cast aspersions on the, the village girl, he said, okay. And took the child in and looked after the child. And, and at some point, the, the village girl who had blamed the abbot for um, the pregnancy um, became so racked with guilt, she eventually confessed to her parents, and eventually the villagers went up to um, the monastery and said, oh, we're so sorry, please forgive us. It was, we didn't know, and please accept our, forgive, our apologies, and, and may we take the child back. And the Zen master, of course, gives the child back and says, ah, so. So, a beautiful story about how, what it would be like to be able to um, be in the midst of 
praise and blame with some equanimity. So next time someone sends you an email or judges your work performance, notice how personally you take it. Notice how much the ego gets identified around it. And the same thing with praise. I used to be a cook, and uh, it was a great teaching on this, this particular um, teaching because you can never please that many people when you cook. You can please about half the audience, maybe, half the, half the mouths, but not the other half. And so, you know, some people come and say, oh, so amazing, I loved your food. And other people are like, what was in that? That was really like... You know, you work at Spirit Rocky, all these love notes, and you get all these hate notes. <laughs> What's up with the tofu? I mean, really, like, and tempeh, really? That's a food? I'm not sure. And it's the same with Dharma talks. You know, this is very common for us, especially when we teach retreats, and again, we get notes as teachers, and you know, on our performance, you know, it's scorecards, you know, seven, <laughs> 6.9. And, you know, inevitably there'll be um, notes that, you know, on the same talk. Uh, in fact, one colleague of ours um, gave a talk and before he'd even left the hall, there was a note pinned to the board saying that was the worst talk I've ever heard in my life. And then a little while later, there was somebody who wrote, that was the best talk I've ever heard in my life. So you can't win. If, well, you can't win if you're trying to you know, appease and get all the, all the votes. And it just points to the, relatively, relativi- the relativity of perception and how much we're leaning outward for reference, for validation. Yeah? The danger of getting a lot of praise is we keep leaning out more for that continuation of validation. There's a wonderful line, um, a couple of great lines. Uh, I think this is from Dustin Hoffman who said, Seek not the critics. Uh, sorry, I'm going to lose it here. Seek not the critic's praise, nor his disdain, something like that. Mm. It's a little more interesting than that, but anyhow, I'll, I'll come back to you about that one. Um, there's another line, this is from a composer, I forget which one, I think Debussy said, there's never been a, a monument erected in honor of a critic. <laughs> So pleasure, gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. So I think with pleasure and pain, we're a little more familiar with this in our meditation experience, because we can see that changing nature pretty much, you know, when we pay attention to Vedana, this quality of feeling tone in our experience, in every moment there's a quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutral. If we're tracking our experience, we're constantly this 
moving ocean of pleasure and pain. What we do with that is what determines our well-being in the moment. So right now, take a look at your experience and the, the, the modulation of pleasure and pain. This talk, talk may be very painful. <laughs> but being at Spirit Rock may be very pleasurable. And being with friends may be very pleasurable. But being so hot may be very unpleasant. Or being tired. Or wanting to be home. Right, so just, just notice the, the momentary pleasure and pain of our experience. And the, teacher, the Dharma teachings are always pointing us to, well, what are we doing with all of that, that, that bad data? If we can just rest in awareness of it, we just see the comings and the goings, there's a lot of peace. If we want our experience to be over here, in the pleasurable camp, and not over there, in the unpleasurable, painful camp, then we've got some challenges ahead of us. Because it means we have to block out and delete a lot of our experience. So I was thinking about this in relationship to um, the different ways that we experience pleasure and pain in the midst of a single experience. So the, 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 the experience that seemed most apparent was being in love or being in relationship. Yeah? Just that inevitable cascade of both pleasure and pain. Partly because we don't have any control over the situation. <clears throat> we have to yield to another's another person's likes and dislikes and wants and needs. Or the experience of parenting. And I hear from many of my friends, both a beautiful, wonderful, touching, but also very challenging, difficult, sleep-depriving <laughs> experience. Or any project they're involved in, any passion, any, 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 any thing we're trying to implement, both pleasurable and, satisf and satisfying when we get to achieve certain things, but also challenging in the <coughs> dynamics of human relationships. And I'm in the midst of organizing this project in New York, um, uh, taking my nature-based work into Manhattan and um, organizing, a, we're landscaping an art gallery um, uh, and then doing nature meditation-based practices downtown and on the parks. and A wonderful, creative, juicy project. But it's also fraught with the usual frustrations of a project. Funding and relationship dynamics and scheduling issues and conflict of interests and um, just like any other situation. Um, when I was in the mountains with my partner last week, um, she's a hiker and, and an outdoor person like me, and, but she's going through a, she has a health issue with um, deteriorating cartilage in her ankle, so she can't really hike anymore. And it was a very poignant um, uh, example of this, this particular teaching of both the joy and the sorrow, the pleasure and the pain of being in this body. And all, you know, these, these distinct categories, pleasure, pain, gain, loss, they're really all just of a web. 
I think about being in the body and the and the the gain and the loss. You know, we can't be in this body without both maturation and also the disintegration and aging, which is very challenging in all of its different levels. So lastly, the the pair of fame and disrepute, which is um, probably the place that the ego gets most caught up in around wanting acclaim, wanting uh, to avoid disrepute uh, or judgment, like in the, the story of the monk and the the pregnant girl. And the, the, the example I think about this particular teaching is uh, whenever I come across People magazine, um, which I think exemplifies, exemplifies fame and disrepute. There's something in our celebrity culture that loves to put certain people on pedestals and admire them and adulate them and then loves getting out the knife and cutting them down. And there's something, it seems, that's very gratifying about that. At the same time, it's also very horrific, and it's almost like throwing people into the gladiator ring. You know, in one week, some movie stars being admired for their looks or their beauty. Next week, they have, you know, too much. I don't know what. Um, Lots of stuff you put in your face to get rid of the lines. Uh, Botox. Yeah, or something. Or collagen in the lips or something. And I, and I, I, it's just, I just find it interesting that, the, you know, to, to track how this, this, this celebrity media culture that we're in there's something both reassuring about watching that happen on a stage that's separate from ourselves. There's, both this, there's something very engrossing at the same time we, we might know that it's also very hollow and painful. We like to see these lives lived out. We want to see someone uh, with success and fame. And there's also something in the psyche that, that sort of relishes seeing them fall. Interesting part of our dynamic. And then I mean, this is a, you know, if we again, we look on the, the macro picture, um, easy to get into praise and blame and fame and disrepute with, with politicians. Of course, maybe they deserve it. But, um, you know, I think about someone like Obama, you know, where in an impossible situation where there's going to be fame and disrepute, where you know, there's certain ways, there's just no way that he's going to satisfy uh, because of the nature of Washington and the nature of the political system. Oh, there's the figures like Bernie Madoff, you know, who in the 70s and 80s and the 90s was, you know, for some people was a great economic hero, until we realize what kind of Ponzi scheme he was up to. Yeah. Or Tiger Woods, yeah. talk about fame and disrepute. And sometimes these things aren't so clear-cut, like I was thinking about um, uh, Walmart. And 
uh, an employer of 1.3 million people in this country, the biggest purchaser of organic products in this country is Walmart, right? but also shred any labor laws that uh, encourage any the, the staff from organizing. And so these things are unclear. Another example I thought of was Starbucks. You know? Wonderful company to work for, terrible for local coffee shops. but nice if you like coffee. So, so the point of these teachings is to just to reflect on these vicissitudes, that none of us are immune from the vicissitudes. And to just look at the day-to-day -day way that you relate to these changing circumstances. And to see when you get caught. See when you're getting caught by fighting against the law of change. And to see, well, what would, be, what would be another way to relate to this loss, or pain, or pleasure, or gain, or disrepute, or blame? So I think about the Buddha who was, um, uh, had a lot of enemies when he was teaching. And we like to think, oh, you know, we, people must have thought he was great. And um, sometimes you read the text and, the, he, and, and, and historical accounts, and you also get the sense it was quite lonely. Because he, he was, you know, like Jesus and other great spiritual teachers, he was going against the, the ruling religious orthodoxy at the time. And so had a lot of um, enemies, critics, challenges, people judging, um, people trying to uh, sabotage his, his order and his uh, status. Um, and at the same time, kept very steady and, and, and true to what he was saying. So, in my experience, you know, I, the refuge in, in changing conditions is the quality of presence or awareness that we have as part of our nature. The one thing that tracks the changing nature of things is the quality of awareness. And that's what we, we can hold refuge, we can hold steady with in this changing swell of life. So right now, as you just sit quietly, notice how your experience is always changing. Maybe you notice the sounds, or the thoughts, or your body, or your feelings. Notice if you take refuge in this 
understanding of change, then whatever is present, there's a little more capacity to be with it, to hold it, to embrace it, to yield to it. Because we know it's not going to be present for very long. So we can enjoy those things that are delicious and beautiful and lovely, knowing that they'll pass, so we appreciate them. Like this beautiful Indian summer. And if things are painful or difficult, knowing this too will pass. everybody. Thank you for your attention. Nice to be here. West Nisko will be